Part 1 of On Propositions, What They Are and How They Mean by Bertrand Russell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Landon D.C. Elkind at the University of Iowa in Coralville, Iowa. On Propositions, What They Are and How They Mean. Footnote. In what follows, the first section, On the Structure of Facts, contains nothing essentially novel, and is only included for the convenience of the reader. I have defended its doctrines elsewhere, and have therefore here set them down dogmatically. On the other hand, later sections contain views which I have not hitherto advocated, resulting chiefly from an attempt to define what constitutes meaning and to dispense with the subject except as a logical construction. End of footnote. A proposition may be defined as what we believe when we believe truly or falsely. This definition is so framed as to avoid the assumption that, whenever we believe, our belief is true or false. In order to arrive from the definition at an account of what a proposition is, we must decide what belief is, what is the sort of thing that can be believed, and what constitutes truth or falsehood in a belief. I take it as evident that the truth or falsehood of a belief depends upon a fact to which the belief refers. Therefore, it is well to begin our inquiry by examining the nature of facts. Section 1. Structure of Facts I mean by a fact, anything complex. If the world contains no simples, then whatever it contains is a fact. If it contains any simples, then facts are whatever it contains except simples. When it is raining, that is a fact. When the sun is shining, that is a fact. The distance from London to Edinburgh is a fact. That all men die is probably a fact. That the planets move round the sun approximately in ellipses is a fact. In speaking of these as facts, I am not alluding to the phrases in which we assert them, or to our frame of mind while we make the assertions, but to those features in the constitution of the world which make our assertions true, if they are true, or false, if they are false. To say that facts are complex is the same thing as to say that they have constituents. That Socrates was Greek, that he married Xanthippe, that he died of drinking the hemlock, are facts that all have something in common, namely that they are about Socrates, who is accordingly said to be a constituent of each of them. Every constituent of a fact has a position, or several positions, in the fact. For example, Socrates loves Plato, and Plato loves Socrates have the same constituents, but are different facts, because the constituents do not have the same positions in the two facts. Socrates loves Socrates, if it is a fact, contains Socrates in two positions. Two and two are four, contains two in two positions. Two plus two is equal to two squared, contains two in four positions. Two facts are said to have the same form, when they differ only as regards their constituents. In this case, we may suppose the one to result from the other by substitution 
of different constituents. For example, Napoleon hates Wellington results from Socrates loves Plato by substituting Napoleon for Socrates, Wellington for Plato, and hates for loves. It is obvious that some, but not all, facts can be thus derived from Socrates loves Plato. Thus some facts have the same form as this, and some have not. We can represent the form of a fact by the use of variables. Thus, XRY may be used to represent the form of the fact that Socrates loves Plato. But the use of such expressions, as well as of ordinary language, is liable to lead to mistakes unless care is taken to avoid them. There are an infinite number of forms of facts. It will conduce to simplicity to confine ourselves, for the moment, to facts having only three constituents, namely, two terms and a dual or dyadic relation. In a fact which has three constituents, two can be distinguished from the third by the circumstance that, if these two are interchanged, we still have a fact, or, at worst, we obtain a fact by taking the contradictory of what results from the interchange, whereas the third constituent, the relation, cannot ever be interchanged with either of the others. Thus, if there is such a fact as Socrates loves Plato, there is either Plato loves Socrates, or Plato does not love Socrates. But neither Socrates nor Plato can replace loves. For purposes of illustration, I am, for the moment, neglecting the fact that Socrates and Plato are themselves complex. The essentially non-interchangeable constituent of a fact containing three constituents is called a dual or dyadic relation. The other two constituents are called the terms of that relation in that fact. The terms of dual relations are called particulars. Footnote. The above discussion might be replaced by that of subject-predicate facts or of facts containing triadic, tetradic, and so on relations. But it is possible to doubt whether there are subject-predicate facts, and the others are more complicated than those containing three constituents. Hence, these are best for purposes of illustration. End of footnote. Facts containing three constituents are not all of the same form. There are two forms that they may have, which are each other's opposites. Socrates loves Plato, and Napoleon does not love Wellington, are facts which have opposite forms. We will call the form of Socrates loves Plato positive, and the form of Napoleon does not love Wellington negative. So long as we confine ourselves to atomic facts, that is, to such as contain only one verb and neither generality nor its denial, the distinction between positive and negative facts is easily made. In more complicated cases, there are still two kinds of facts, though it is less clear which is positive and which negative. Thus, the forms of facts divide into pairs, such that, given appropriate constituents, there is always a fact of one of the two correlated forms, but not of the other. Given any two particulars of a dual relation, say x and y and r, there will be either a fact xry or a fact not xry. Let us suppose, for the sake of illustration, that x has the relation r to y, and z does not have the relation s to w. Each of these facts contains only three constituents, 
a relation and two terms, but the two facts do not have the same form. In the one, R relates X and Y. In the other, S does not relate Z and W. It must not be supposed that the negative fact contains a constituent corresponding to the word not. It contains no more constituents than a positive fact of the correlative positive form. The difference between the two forms is ultimate and irreducible. We will call this characteristic of a form its quality. Thus facts and forms of facts have two opposite qualities, positive and negative. There is implanted in the human breast an almost unquenchable desire to find some way of avoiding the admission that negative facts are as ultimate as those that are positive. The infinite negative has been endlessly abused and interpreted. Usually it is said that, when we deny something, we are really asserting something else which is incompatible with what we deny. If we say roses are not blue, we mean roses are white or red or yellow. But such a view will not bear a moment's scrutiny. It is only plausible when the positive quality by which our denial is supposed to be replaced is incapable of existing together with the quality denied. The table is square may be denied by the table is round, but not by the table is wooden. The only reason we can deny the table is square by the table is round is that what is round is not square. And this has to be a fact, though just as negative as the fact that this table is not square. Thus it is plain that incompatibility cannot exist without negative facts. There might be an attempt to substitute for a negative fact the mere absence of a fact. If A loves B, it may be said, that is a good substantial fact, while if A does not love B, that merely expresses the absence of a fact composed of A and loving and B, and by no means involves the actual existence of a negative fact. But the absence of a fact is itself a negative fact. It is the fact that there is not such a fact as A loving B. Thus, we cannot escape from negative facts in this way. Of the many attempts that have been made to dispense with negative facts, the best known to me is that of Mr. Demos. Footnote, a discussion of a certain type of negative proposition. In mind, NS, number 102, pages 188 through 196, April 1917. End of footnote. His view is as follows. There is among propositions an ultimate relation of opposition. This relation is indefinable, but has the characteristic that when two propositions are opposites, they cannot both be true, though they may both be false. Thus, John is in and John is gone to Similpolitinsk are opposites. When we deny a proposition, what we are really doing is to assert some opposite of this proposition is true. The difficulty of this theory is to state the very important fact that two opposites cannot both be true. Quote, the relation of opposition, says Mr. Demos, is such that if P opposes Q, P and Q are not both true. At least one of them is false. This must not be taken as a definition, for it makes use of the notion not, which, I said, 
is equivalent to the notion opposite. In fact, opposition seems epistemologically to be a primitive notion. End of quote. Page 191. Now, if we take Mr. Demos's statement that P and Q are not both true and apply his definition to it, it becomes an opposite of P and Q are both true is true. But this does not yield what we want. Suppose some obstinate person were to say, I believe P and I believe Q, and I also believe that an opposite of P and Q are both true is true. What could Mr. Demos reply to such a person? He would presumably reply, Don't you see that that is impossible? It cannot be the case that P and Q are both true, and also that an opposite of P and Q are both true is true. But an opponent would retort by asking him to state his negation in his own language, in which case all that Mr. Demos could say would be, let us give the name uppercase P to the proposition P and Q are both true. Then the proposition that you assert and that I deny is uppercase P is true, and also some opposite of uppercase P is true. Calling this proposition uppercase Q and applying my definition of negation, what I am asserting is that some opposite of uppercase Q is true. This also the obstinate person would admit. He would go on forever admitting opposites, but refusing to make any denials. To such an attitude, so far as I can see, there would be no reply except to change the subject. It is, in fact, necessary to admit that two opposites cannot both be true, and not to regard this as a statement to which the suggested definition of negation is to be applied. And the reason is that we must be able to say that a proposition is not true without having to refer to any other proposition. The above discussion has prematurely introduced propositions in order to follow Mr. Demos's argument. We shall see later, when we have defined propositions, that all propositions are positive facts, even when they assert negative facts. This is, I believe, the source of our unwillingness to admit negative facts as ultimate. The subject of negative facts might be argued at great length, but as I wish to reach the proper topic of my paper, I will say no more about it, and will merely observe that a not dissimilar set of considerations shows the necessity of admitting general facts, that is, facts about all or some of a collection. Section 2 meaning of images and words. The questions which arise concerning propositions are so many and so various that it is not easy to know where to begin. One very important question is as to whether propositions are what I call incomplete symbols or not. Another question is as to whether the word proposition can stand for anything except a form of words. A third question is as to the manner in which a proposition refers to the fact which makes it true or false. I am not suggesting that these are the only important questions, but they are, at any rate, questions which any theory of propositions should be able to answer. Let us begin with the most tangible thing, the proposition as a form of words. Take again Socrates loves Plato. This is a complex symbol, 
composed of three symbols, namely Socrates and Loves and Plato. Whatever may be the meaning of a complex symbol, it is clear that it depends upon the meanings of the separate words. Thus, before we can hope to understand the meaning of a proposition as a form of words, we must understand what constitutes the meaning of single words. Logicians, so far as I know, have done very little towards explaining the nature of the relation called meaning, nor are they to blame in this, since the problem is essentially one for psychology. But before we tackle the question of the meaning of a word, there is one important observation to be made as to what a word is. If we confine ourselves to spoken words in one language, a word is a class of closely similar noises produced by breath combined with movements of the throat and tongue and lips. This is not a definition of words, since some noises are meaningless, and meaning is part of the definition of words. It is important, however, to realize at the outset that what we call one word is not a single entity, but a class of entities. There are instances of the word dog, just as there are instances of dogs. And when we hear a noise, we may be doubtful whether it is the word dog badly pronounced or not. The noises that are instances of a word shade off into other noises by continuous gradations, just as dogs themselves may shade off into wolves according to the evolutionary hypothesis. And, of course, exactly the same remarks apply to written words. It is obvious to begin with that if we take some such word as Socrates or dog, the meaning of the word consists in some relation to an object or set of objects. The first question to be asked is, can the relation called meaning be a direct relation between the word as a physical occurrence and the object itself, or must the relation pass through a mental intermediary, which could be called the idea of the object? If we take the view that no mental intermediary is required, we shall have to regard the meaning of a word as consisting in what James would call processes of leading. That is to say, the causes and effects of the occurrence of a word will be connected, in some way to be further defined, with the object which is its meaning. To take an unusually crude instance, you see John and you say, hello, John. This gives the cause of the word. You call John and John appears at the door. This gives the effect of the word. Thus, in this case, John is both cause and effect of the word John. When we say of a dog that he knows his name, it is only such causal correlations that are indubitable. We cannot be sure that there is any mental occurrence in the dog when we call him and he comes. Is it possible that all use and understanding of language consists merely in the fact that certain events cause it and it, in turn, causes certain events. This view of language has been advocated, more or less tentatively, by Professor Watson in his book on behavior. Footnote, Behavior, an Introduction to Comparative Psychology by John B. Watson, Professor of Psychology in the Johns Hopkins University, New York, 1914. See especially pages 321 to 334. End of footnote. 
This behaviorist view, as I understand it, maintains that mental phenomena, though they may exist, are not amenable to scientific treatment, because each of them can only be observed by one observer. In fact, it is highly doubtful whether even one observer can be aware of anything not reducible to some bodily occurrence. Behaviorism is not a metaphysic, but a principle of method. Since language is an observable phenomenon, and since language has a property which we call meaning, it is essential to behaviorism to give an account of meaning which introduces nothing known only through introspection. Professor Watson recognizes this obligation and sets to work to fulfill it. Nor is it to be lightly assumed that he cannot do so, though I incline to the belief that a theory of language which takes no account of images is incomplete in a vital point. But let us first see what is to be said in favor of the behaviorist theory of language. Professor Watson denies altogether the occurrence of images, which he replaces by faint kinesthetic sensations, especially those belonging to the pronunciation of words sotto voce. He defines implicit behavior as, quote, involving only the speech mechanisms or the larger musculature in a minimal way, for example, bodily attitudes or sets, end of quote, page 19. He adds, quote, it is implied in these words that there exists or ought to exist a method of observing implicit behavior. There is none at present. The larynx and tongue, we believe, are the loci of most of the phenomena, end of quote, page 20. He repeats these views in greater detail in a later chapter. The way in which the intelligent use of words is learnt is thus set forth. Quote, the stimulus object to which the child often responds, a box for example, by movements such as opening and closing and putting objects into it, may serve to illustrate our argument. The nurse, observing that the child reacts with his hands, feet, and so on to the box, begins to say box when the child is handed the box, open box when the child opens it, close box when he closes it, and put doll in box when that act is executed. This is repeated over and over again. In the process of time, it comes about that without any other stimulus than that of the box, which originally called out only the bodily habits, he begins to say box when he sees it open box when he opens it, and so on. The visible box now becomes a stimulus capable of releasing either the bodily habits or the word habit. That is, development has brought about two things. One, a series of functional connections among arcs which run from visual receptor to muscles of throat, and two, a series of already earlier connected arcs which run from the same receptor to the bodily muscles. The object meets the child's vision. He runs to it and tries to reach it and says box. Finally, the word is uttered without the movement of going towards the box being executed. Habits are formed of going to the box when the arms are full of toys. The child has been taught to deposit them there. When his arms are laden with toys and no box is there, the word habit arises and he calls box. It is handed to him, and he opens it and deposits the toys therein. 
This roughly marks what we would call the genesis of a true language habit. End of quote. Pages 329 to 330. A few pages later, he says, quote, We say nothing of reasoning since we do not admit this as a genuine type of human behavior except as a special form of language habit. End of quote. Page 319. The questions raised by the above theory of language are of great importance, since the possibility of what may be called a materialistic psychology turns on them. If a person talks and writes intelligently, he gives us as much evidence as we can ever hope to have of his possessing a mind. If his intelligent speech and writing can be explained on Professor Watson's lines, there seems to remain nothing he can do to persuade us that he is not merely physical. There is, I think, a valid objection to the behaviorist view of language, on the basis of fact and an invalid one of theory. The objection of fact is that the denial of images appears empirically indefensible. The objection of theory, which, in spite of its apparent force, I do not believe to be unanswerable, is that it is difficult, on the basis of the above quotations, to account for the occurrence of the word when the object is merely desired, not actually present. Let us take these in succession. 1. The existence of images. Professor Watson, one must conclude, does not possess the faculty of visualizing, and is unwilling to believe that others do. Kinesthetic images can be explained away as being really small sensations of the same kind as those that would belong to actual movements. Inner speech, in particular, insofar as it is not accompanied by auditory images, may, I think, really consist of such small sensations, and be accompanied by small movements of the tongue or throat, such as behaviorism requires. Tactile images might possibly be similarly explained, but visual and auditory images cannot be so explained, because, if taken as sensations, they actually contradict the laws of physics. The chair opposite to you is empty. You shut your eyes and visualize your friend as sitting in it. This is an event in you, not in the outer world. It may be a physiological event, but even so, it must be radically distinguished from a visual sensation, since it affords no part of the data upon which our knowledge of the physical world outside our own body is built. If you try to persuade an ordinary uneducated person that she cannot call up a visual picture of a friend sitting in a chair, but can only use words describing what such an occurrence would be like, she will conclude that you are mad. This statement is based upon experiment. I see no reason whatever to reject the conclusion originally suggested by Galton's investigations, namely, that the habit of abstract pursuits makes learned men much inferior to the average in the power of visualizing, and much more exclusively occupied with words in their thinking. When Professor Watson says, quote, I should throw out imagery altogether and attempt to show that practically all natural thought goes on in terms of sensory motor processes in the larynx, but not in terms of imageless thought, end of quote, Psychological Review, 1913, page 174, note, he is, it seems to me, mistaking a personal peculiarity for a universal human characteristic. The rejection of images by behaviorists is, of course, 
part of their rejection of introspection as a source of knowledge. It will be well, therefore, to consider for a moment the grounds in favor of this rejection. The arguments of those who oppose introspection as a scientific method seem to me to rest upon two quite distinct grounds, of which one is much more explicit in their writings than the other. The ground which is more explicit is that data obtained by introspection are private and only verifiable by one observer, and cannot therefore have the degree of public certainty which science demands. The other, less explicit ground is that physical science has constructed a spatiotemporal cosmos obeying certain laws, and it is irritating to have to admit that there are things in the world which do not obey these laws. It is worthwhile to observe that the definition of introspection is different according as we take the one or the other of these grounds of objection. If privacy is the main objection to introspective data, we shall have to include among such data all bodily sensations. A toothache, for example, is essentially private. The dentist may see that your tooth is in a condition in which it is likely to ache, but he does not feel your ache, and only knows what you mean by an ache through his own experience of similar occurrences. The correlation of cavities with toothaches has been established by a number of observations, each of which was private in exactly the same sense which is considered objectionable. And yet, one would not call a person introspective because he was conscious of toothache, and it is not very difficult to find a place for toothache in the physical world. I shall not insist upon the fact that, in the last analysis, all our sensations are private, and the public world of physics is built on similarities, not on identities. But it is worthwhile to insist upon the privacy of the sensations which gives us knowledge of our own body over and above the knowledge we have of other bodies. This is important because no one regards as scientifically negligible the knowledge of our own body which is obtained through these private data. This brings us to the second ground of objection to introspection, namely, that its data do not obey the laws of physics. This, though less emphasized, is, I think, the objection which is really felt the more strongly of the two. And this objection leads to a definition of introspection which is much more in harmony with usage than that which results from making privacy the essential characteristic of its data. For example, Knight Dunlap, a vigorous opponent of introspection, contends that images are really muscular contractions. Footnote. Psychological Review, 1916, Thought Content and Feeling, page 59. See also his articles in an earlier volume of the same review, The Case Against Introspection, 1912, pages 404 to 413, and The Nature of Perceived Relations, that same source, pages 415 to 446. In this last article, he states, quote, that introspection, divested of its mythological suggestion of the observing of consciousness, is really the observation of bodily sensations, sensibles, and feelings, feelables. End of quote. Page 427, note. End of footnote. And evidently regards our awareness of muscular contractions as not coming under the head of introspection. 
I think it will be found that the essential characteristic of introspective data is concerned with localization. Either they are not localized at all, or they are localized in a place already physically occupied by something which would be inconsistent with them if they were regarded as part of the physical world. In either case, introspective data have to be regarded as not obeying the laws of physics. And this is, I think, the fundamental reason why an attempt is made to reject them. The question of the publicity of data and the question of their physical status are not wholly unconnected. We may distinguish a gradually diminishing degree of publicity in various data. Those of sight and hearing are the most public, smell somewhat less so, touch still less, visceral sensations hardly at all. The question turns on the degree and frequency of similarity of sensations in neighbors at the same time. If we hear a clap of thunder when no one else does, we think we are mad. If we feel a stomach ache when no one else does, we are in no way surprised. We say, therefore, that the stomach ache is mine, while the thunder is not. But what is mine includes what belongs to the body and it is here that the stomachache belongs. The stomachache is localized. It has a position near the surface of the stomach which is visible and palpable. How the localization is affected need not concern us in this connection. Now, when we consider the localization of images, we find a difference according to the nature of the images. Images of private sensations can be localized where the private sensations would be, without causing any gross or obvious violation of physical laws. Images of words in the mouth can be located in the mouth. For this reason, there is no prima facie objection to regarding them, as Watson does, as small sensations. This view may or may not be true, but it is not capable of being rejected without more ado. In regard to all private sensations, the distinction between image and sensation is not sharp and definite, but visual and auditory images are in quite a different position, since the physical event to which they would point, if they were sensations, is not taking place. Thus, the crucial phenomena as regards introspection are images of public sensations, that is, especially visual and auditory images. On grounds of observation, in spite of Watson, it seems impossible to deny that such images occur, but they are not public, and if taken as sensations, contradict the laws of physics. Reverting to the case of visualizing a friend in a chair which, in fact, is empty, you cannot locate the image in the body because it is visual, nor, as a physical phenomenon, in the chair, because the chair, as a physical object, is empty. Thus, it seems that the physical world does not include all that we are aware of, and that introspection must be admitted as a source of knowledge distinct from sensation. I do not, of course, mean to suggest that visual and auditory images are only non-physical data. I have taken them as affording the strongest case for the argument. But when they are admitted, there is no longer any reason to reject other images. Our criticism of fact as against Watson, has led us to the conclusion that it is impossible to escape the admission of images 
as something radically distinct from sensations, particularly as being not amenable to the laws of physics. It remains to consider a possible criticism of theory, namely that it is difficult, on his view, to account for the occurrence of a word when an absent object is desired. I do not think this criticism valid, but I think the considerations which it suggests are important. 2. Words in the absence of their objects. In the account given by Watson of the child learning to use the word box, attention is almost wholly concentrated on the way the word comes to occur in the presence of the box. There is only a brief reference to the use of the word when the box is absent but desired. Quote, Habits are formed of going to the box when the arms are full of toys. The child has been taught to deposit them there. When his arms are laden with toys and no box is there, the word habit arises and he calls box. End of quote. The difficulty, I think not insuperable, which arises in regard to this account is that there seems no adequate stimulus for the word habit in the circumstances supposed. We are assuming that the habit has been formed of saying box when the box is present. But how can such a habit lead to the use of the same word when the box is absent? The believer in images will say that, in the absence of the box, an image of it will occur in the child, and this image will have the same associations as the box has, including the association with the word box. In this way, the use of the word is accounted for, but in Watson's account it remains mysterious. Let us see what this objection amounts to. The phenomenon called thinking, however it may be analyzed, has certain characteristics which cannot be denied. One of the most obvious of these is that it enables us to act with reference to absent objects, and not only with reference to those that are sensibly present. The tendency of the behaviorist school is to subordinate cognition to action, and so regard action as physically explicable. Now I do not wish to deny that much action, perhaps most, is physically explicable, but nevertheless it seems impossible to account for all action without taking account of ideas, that is, images of absent objects. If this view is rejected, it will be necessary to explain away all desire. Desire is not dealt with by Watson. Footnote. The only discussion of desire by Watson, as far as I know, is in connection with psychoanalysis in his article, The Psychology of Wish Fulfillment, Scientific Monthly, November 1916. End of footnote. It and kindred words are absent from the index to his book. In the absence of such a phenomenon as desire, it is difficult to see what is happening when the child with his arms full of toys says box. One would naturally say that an image of the box occurs, combined with the feeling we call desire, and that the image is associated with the word, just as the box would be, because the image resembles the box. But Watson requires that the arms full of toys should cause the word box without any intermediary and it is not at first sight obvious how this is to be brought about. To this objection there seem two possible replies. One, that the occurrence of the image on the usual theory is just as mysterious as the occurrence of the word on Watson's theory. The other, that the passage from the full arms to the word box is a telescoped process, derived from the habit of translation from full arms to the box 
and thence to the word box. The objection to the second of these replies seems to be that the transition to the word box in the absence of the box feels quite unlike the transition to the word through the actual box. In the latter there is satisfaction, in the former dissatisfaction. Telescoped processes give similar feelings to complete processes. Insofar as they differ, they give more satisfaction as involving less effort. The word box is not the terminus of the child's efforts, but a stage towards their success. It seems difficult, therefore, to assimilate the occurrence of a word in desire to a telescoped process. The retort to the first reply, namely that the occurrence of the image is as mysterious as the occurrence of the word, is that if images are admitted, we can admit psychological causal laws which are different from those of the physical world, whereas on Watson's view, we shall have to admit physiological laws which are different from those of physics. In the physical world, if A often causes B and B often causes C, it does not happen that, in those cases where A fails to cause B, it nevertheless causes C by a telescoped process. I go often to a certain restaurant A, eat there B, and find my hunger satisfied. But, however often this has happened, if on a certain occasion the restaurant is closed so that B fails, I cannot arrive at C. If I could, economy in wartime would be easier than it is. Now the process, Watson assumes, is strictly analogous to this. In his theory, we have a frequent transition from arms full A to the box B, and thence to the word box C. Then one day the transition from A to B fails, but nevertheless the transition from A to C takes place. This demands other causal laws than those of physics, at least prima facie. If images are admitted, it is easy to see that the laws of their occurrence and effects are different from those of physics, and therefore the above difficulty does not exist in regard to them. But if they are denied, a difference of causal laws is required within the realm of matter. This argument, however, is by no means conclusive. The behavior of living matter is obviously in some respects different from that of dead matter, but this does not prove that the difference is ultimate. Gases and solids behave differently, yet both obey ultimate physical laws. The chief peculiarities in the behavior of animals are those due to habit and association, all of which, I believe, may be summarized in the one law, when A and B have often existed in close temporal contiguity, either tends to cause the other. This law will only apply to occurrences within the body of a single animal, but I think it suffices to account for telescoped processes and for the use of words in the absence of their objects. Thus, in Watson's instance, the child has frequently experienced the sequence arms full, box, the word box. Thus, arms full and the word box have frequently existed in close temporal contiguity, and hence arms full can come to cause the word box. They cannot cause the box itself, because this is governed by physical laws independent of the child's body, but they can cause the word. The above law, however, may be explained on orthodox physical lines by the properties of nervous tissue and does not demand a fundamental distinction between physiology and physics. If, therefore, images were not empirically undeniable, I should not consider them theoretically necessary, 
in order to account for the occurrence of words in the absence of their objects. William James, in his Essays in Radical Empiricism, developed the view that the mental and the physical are not distinguished by the stuff of which they are made, but only by their causal laws. This view is very attractive, and I have made great endeavors to believe it. I think James is right in making the distinction between the causal laws the essential thing. There do seem to be psychological and physical causal laws which are distinct from each other. Footnote. I do not pretend to know whether the distinction is ultimate and irreducible. I say only that it is to be accepted practically in the present condition of science. End of footnote. We may define psychology as the study of one sort of laws, and physics as the study of the other. But when we come to consider the stuff of the two sciences, it would seem that there are some particulars which obey only physical laws, namely unperceived material things, some which obey only psychological laws, namely images at least, and some which obey both, namely sensations. Thus sensations will be both physical and mental, while images will be purely mental. The use of words actually pronounced or written is part of the physical world, but insofar as words obtain their meaning through images, it is impossible to deal adequately with words without introducing psychology and taking account of data obtained by introspection. If this conclusion is valid, the behaviorist theory of language is inadequate, in spite of the fact that it suggests much that is true and important. I shall henceforth assume the existence of images and shall proceed, on this assumption, to define the meaning of words and images. In considering the meaning of either a word or an image, we have to distinguish 1. the causes of the word or image, 2. its effects, 3. what is the relation that constitutes meaning. It is fairly clear that meaning is a relation involving causal laws, but it involves also something else which is less easy to define. The meaning of words differs, as a rule, from that of images by depending upon association, not upon similarity. To think of the meaning of a word is to call up images of what it means. Normally, grown-up people, speaking their own language, use words without thinking of their meaning. A person understands a word when a. suitable circumstances make him use it, b. the hearing of it causes suitable behavior in him. We may call these two active and passive understanding respectively. Dogs have passive understanding of some words, but not active understanding. It is not necessary to understanding a word that a person should know what it means, in the sense of being able to say, this word means so-and-so. A word has a meaning, more or less vague, but the meaning is only to be discovered by observing its use. The use comes first, and the meaning is distilled out of it. The relation of a word to its meaning is, in fact, of the nature of a causal law, and there is no more reason why a person using a word correctly should be conscious of its meaning than there is for a planet which is moving correctly to be conscious of Kepler's laws. To illustrate what is meant by understanding words and sentences, let us suppose that you are walking in London with an absent-minded friend. You say, 
Look out, there's a motor coming. He will glance round and jump aside without the need of any mental intermediary. There need be no ideas, but only a stiffening of the muscles, followed quickly by action. He understands the words because he does the right thing. Such understanding may be regarded as belonging to the nerves and brain, being habits which they have acquired while the language was being learnt. Thus, understanding in this sense may be reduced to mere physiological causal laws. If you say the same thing to a Frenchman with a slight knowledge of English, he will go through some inner speech, which may be represented by Kedii, Ah oui, un automobile. After this, the rest follows as with the Englishman. Watson would contend that the inner speech must be actually incipiently pronounced. We should argue that it might be merely imagined, but this point need not detain us at present. If you say the same thing to a child who does not yet know the word motor, but does know the other words you are using, you produce a feeling of anxiety and doubt. You will have to point and say, there, that's a motor. After that, the child will roughly understand the word motor, though he may include trains and steamrollers. If this is the first time the child has heard the word motor, he may for a long time continue to recall this scene when he hears the word. So far we have found four ways of understanding words. 1. On suitable occasions, you use the word properly. 2. When you hear it, you act appropriately. 3. You associate the word with another word, say in a different language, which has the appropriate effect on behavior. 4. When the word is being first learnt, you associate it with an object, which is what it means. Thus, the word acquires some of the same causal efficacy as the object. The word motor can make you leap aside, just as the motor can, but it cannot break your bones. So far, everything can be accounted for by behavior. But so far, we have only considered what may be called the demonstrative use of language, to point out a feature in the present environment. We have not considered what we may call its narrative use, of which we may take as an instance the telling of some remembered event. Let us take again the case of the child hearing the word motor for the first time. On some later occasion, we will suppose, the child remembers the incident and relates it to someone else. In this case, both the active and passive understanding of words is different from what it is when motors are used demonstratively. The child is not seeing a motor, but only remembering one. The hearer does not look round in expectation of seeing a motor coming, but understands that a motor came at some earlier time. The whole of this occurrence is much more difficult to account for on behaviorist lines. Indeed, it does not call for any particular behavior. It is clear that, insofar as the child is genuinely remembering, he has a picture of the past occurrence, and his words are chosen so as to describe the picture. And insofar as the hearer is genuinely apprehending what is said, the hearer is acquiring a picture more or less like that of the child. It is true that this process may be telescoped through the operation of the word habit. The child may not genuinely remember the incident, but only have the habit of the appropriate words, as in the case of a poem which we know by heart 
though we cannot remember learning it. And the hearer also may only pay attention to the words and not call up any corresponding picture. But it is nevertheless the possibility of a memory image in the child and an imagination image in the hearer that makes the essence of the meaning of the words. Insofar as this is absent, the words are mere counters, capable of meaning, but not at the moment possessing it. We may say that, while words used demonstratively describe and are intended to cause sensations, the same words used in narrative describe and are intended to cause images. We have thus two other ways in which words can mean, perhaps not fundamentally distinct, namely, the way of memory and the way of imagination. That is to say, five, words may be used to describe or recall a memory image, to describe it when it already exists, or to recall it where the words exist as a habit and are known to be descriptive of some past experience. Six, words may be used to describe or create an imagination image, to describe it, for example, in the case of a poet or novelist, or to create it in the ordinary case of giving information, though in the latter case, it is intended that the imagination image, when created, shall be accompanied by belief that something of the sort has occurred. These two ways of using words may be spoken of together as the use of words in thinking. This way of using words, since it depends upon images, cannot be fully dealt with on behaviorist lines. And this is really the most essential function of words, that primarily, through their connection with images, they bring us into touch with what is remote in time or space. When they operate without the medium of images, this seems to be a telescoped process. Thus, the problem of the meaning of words is reduced to the problem of the meaning of images. The meaning of images is the simplest kind of meaning, because images resemble what they mean whereas words, as a rule, do not. Images are said to be copies of sensations. It is true that this assumption is liable to skeptical criticism, but I shall assume it to be true. It appears to common sense to be verified by such experiences as, for example, recalling a familiar room and then going into the room and finding it as it was remembered. If our memory was wrong, we must suppose that the room and our image of it have undergone similar changes, which does not seem a plausible hypothesis. Thus, for practical purposes, we are justified in assuming that, in this case, our image resembled what the room was when we previously saw it. We may then say that our image means the room. The question what a given image means is partly within the control of our will. The image of a printed word may mean, not the word, but what the word means. The image of a triangle may mean one particular triangle, or triangles in general. In thinking of dogs in general, we may use a vague image of a dog, which means the species, not any individual. Similarly, in recalling a friend's face, we usually do not recall any one special occasion when we have seen it, but a compromise image of many occasions. While some images mean particulars and others mean universals, in early stages of thought, meaning is too vague to be either definitely particular or definitely universal, all images are particulars, 
but what they mean depends upon the nature of their causal efficacy. An image means a universal if its effects depend only upon its prototype being an instance of that universal. Thus, if I call up an image of a dog with a view to a general statement about dogs, I only use those characteristics of my image which it shares with all images of dogs. We can, to some extent, use or ignore the particular features of an image as we choose. In using words, we always ignore all that is peculiar to the instance of the word, except in elocution and calligraphy. Two instances of the word dog are more alike than two dogs. This is one reason why words help in dealing with universals. If we accept Hume's principle that simple ideas are derived from impressions, we shall hold that at any rate the simple, sensible qualities that enter into an image are copies of sensible qualities that have been given in sensation. Complex images are often, but not always, copies of complex sensations. Their constituents, if Hume is right, are always copies of something given in sensation. That of which an image is a copy is called its prototype, and this, or its parts, by Hume's principle, is always an indispensable part of the cause either of the image or of its constituents, in the case of a complex imagination image. The effects of an image tend to resemble those of its prototype, or to produce desire or aversion for it. This is one link between an image and its meaning. The thought of a drink has effects on a thirsty man which are similar to those of a sight of the foaming glass. This similarity belongs also to words, no doubt, through their power of calling up images, but afterwards directly. The way in which an image resembles its prototype is peculiar. Images as a class have, with rare exceptions, characteristic differences from sensations as a class but individual images, subject to these differences, resemble individual sensations. Images, however, are of various degrees of vagueness, and the vaguer they are, the more different objects can be accepted as their prototypes. The nearest approach that I can make to a definition of the relation of image and prototype is this. If an object O is the prototype, or a prototype in the case of vagueness, of an image, then in the presence of O, we can recognize it as what we had an image of. We may then say that O is the meaning, or a meaning in the case of vagueness, of the image. But as we saw, meaning is to some extent subject to the will. A generic image, for example, is simply one intended to be generic. End of part one of On Propositions, What They Are and How They Mean.